Welcome to PQ Talk on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kamath and I'm a pediatric critical care physician at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And my name is Rahul Demania, a current second year pediatric critical care fellow. Today's episode is dedicated to acute severe hypertension in the pediatric intensive care unit. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Stella Shin, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, Pediatric Nephrology at the Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Shin is also the Director of General Pediatric Nephrology and the Director of Acute Kidney Replacement Therapy at the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta in Atlanta, Georgia. Her interests include nephrotoxic medication stewardship, health informatics, and healthcare quality improvement. She's on Twitter at babybeandoc. I will now turn it over to Rahul to start out with our patient case. A 17-year-old, previously healthy, thinly built male teenager is brought to the emergency department for sudden development of blurred vision. Patient has a history of headaches for the past few months, accompanied by abdominal pain and relieved by vomiting. He also has felt his heart racing during such episodes, and these episodes are accompanied by profuse sweating. The patient has tried various over-the-counter medications without much improvement in his headaches or abdominal pain. An initial CT scan of the head reveals no intracranial pathology. The emergency department physician notes a blood pressure of 200 over 120 and a pulse of 132 beats per minute. He has started on nicardipine in the pediatric intensive care unit. Dr. Shin, welcome to Pick Your Doc on Call. Before we get into the specifics of our patient case, could you highlight some broad definitions of normal blood pressure and the definition of hypertension? First, I want to thank Rahul and Pradeep for having me on the podcast today. I'm excited to be here to discuss one of my favorite topics, acute severe hypertension, and I have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. Definitions for normal and high blood pressure come from the AAP Clinical Practice Guidelines for Screening and Management of High Blood Pressure. According to these guidelines, normal blood pressure is a blood pressure reading that is less than the 90th percentile for children 1 to 12 years of age, and a normal blood pressure for teenagers 13 years and older is less than or equal to 120 over less than or equal to 80. High blood pressure definitions are divided into three categories elevated blood pressure, stage one hypertension, and stage two hypertension. This is further delineated into categories for children one to 12 years of age and 13 years of age or older. All of these categories depend on specific cutoff values um, that range between the 90th to 95th percentile and above that. These numbers are very detailed and very difficult to remember. Um, it's a lot of numbers and cutoffs. So to make it easy, in general, hypertension in children and adolescents is defined as a sustained systolic and or diastolic blood pressure elevation greater than or equal to the 95th percentile for age, gender, and height. And adult blood pressure cutoffs are used for teenagers one, 13 years or older. The details of these cutoffs can be found in the show notes. Dr. Shin. What is acute severe hypertension? Acute severe hypertension is defined as a significant blood pressure elevation with or without signs of acute target organ damage from the hypertension. This is further classified based on target organ involvement into hypertensive urgency and hypertensive emergency. 
The key difference between the two is whether target organ injury is present or not. Hypertensive urgency is acute severe hypertension without acute target organ damage. Hypertensive urgency is not associated with adverse short-term outcomes and it can be managed in the ambulatory setting. On the other hand, hypertensive emergency is acute severe hypertension that is accompanied by acute target organ injury. It's a medical emergency and with substantial morbidity and mortality, it requires immediate treatment in the ICU. I think this is important for our listeners to understand that acute severe hypertension is on the spectrum between hypertensive urgency and hypertensive emergency. And as these diagnoses exist on a spectrum, it is important for us as clinicians and bedside care providers to understand that these diagnoses are going to hinge upon the evidence or absence of acute target organ damage. Now that we've defined the spectrum, what is your diagnostic framework when it comes to acute severe hypertension? Hypertension can be primary or secondary. The incidence of primary hypertension is increasing in the U.S. due to increasing obesity rates. You know, 30% of obese children can have blood pressure greater than the 95th percentile. Secondary hypertension is hypertension due to another medical condition. After ruling out pain, anxiety, and agitation, in which cases blood pressure is usually transiently elevated, the intensivist should be concerned about conditions such as drug-induced hypertension, with common culprits being steroids, calcineurin inhibitors such as cyclosporin or tacolimus, and illicit drugs or toxins, endocrine conditions such as Cushing disease and pheochromocytoma, and rarely preeclampsia can be seen in pregnant teenagers. And then there's a wide spectrum of kidney diseases, including acute kidney injury, glomerular disease, such as acute nephritis or hemolytic uremic syndrome, renovascular disease, complications of kidney transplant, or acute hypertension in patients known to have chronic hypertension, such as in chronic kidney disease. Fluid overload, especially in patients on chronic dialysis, is also a very common cause of acute hypertension. Dr. Shin, what are your key history and physical elements when you evaluate a patient with acute severe hypertension in the PICU? After a detailed history, physical exam should include a four-extremity blood pressure, evaluation for abdominal or carotid bruise, a fundoscopic exam, exam of the thyroid gland, a detailed neurologic exam, and examination of the skin for cutaneous lesions that may indicate genetic conditions associated with hypertension, such as neurofibromatosis. In a female teenager, a pregnancy test is also necessary. Any patient with hypertensive emergency should be admitted, admitted to the pediatric ICU. Accurate blood pressure readings can be obtained using an arterial line, which helps with titration of medication infusions, and cardiorespiratory monitoring, as well as frequent neurological assessment must be provided. This really brings up an important point. Acute severe hypertension is not just about the finite blood pressure number, but it is also about the clinical features, which, as we will see later on in this episode, are both patient-related as well as laboratory-related. Speaking of labs, Dr. Shin, what are some of the laboratory and imaging studies you would order in a patient with acute severe hypertension that is especially admitted to the intensive care unit? Initial labs should include a comprehensive metabolic panel, a CBC with peripheral smear, and a urinalysis. Depending on the history and physical exam, further studies should include toxicology screens, thyroid function tests, and plasma or urine catecholamines and metanephrines. A baseline EKG should also be obtained. As far as imaging goes, I always start with a kidney ultrasound and Doppler. 
a chest X-ray and echocardiogram should also be performed. And if there is a high suspicion for renal artery stenosis or tumor-induced hypertension, an abdominal CT or MRI can be ordered once the patient is stable and the blood pressure is under good control. In patients suspected of intracranial hypertension, appropriate head CT or brain MRI should be performed when the patient is able to be transported safely. These lab studies are very essential in assessing end organ function, especially in the setting of acute severe hypertension. Dr. Shin, uh, what are some of the common clinical manifestations of acute severe hypertension that are relevant for the pediatric intensivist and that we can correlate to our laboratory workup? Most of the time, the disease process will dictate the presentation. Headache, dizziness, and nausea or vomiting are the most common findings, but visual impairment and abdominal pain can also be present. Seizures, lethargy, confusion, epistaxis, and even cortical blindness can sometimes be present as well. Cardiac manifestations are less common in children, unlike in adults, with only about 9% presenting with congestive heart failure, and anywhere from 13 to 66% of patients having left ventricular hypertrophy. In instances of kidney involvement, proteinuria, microscopic or gross hematuria, and decreased GFR can be seen. As we noted in our case, our patients started developing blurred vision in association with hypertension. Would you mind explaining the pathogenesis of hypertensive encephalopathy? Autoregulation of organ blood flow allows for physiological adaptations that allow organ perfusion to remain relatively constant across a wide range of blood pressures. In hypertensive encephalopathy, the increased blood pressures exceed the autoregulatory range in the central nervous system. Patients typically present with severe headache, dizziness, altered mental status, and even sometimes seizures. In acute severe hypertension, hypertensive encephalopathy can present with mean arterial pressures ranging less than 200 millimeters mercury acutely, but in chronic severe hypertension, the range may be higher. In chronic severe hypertension, cerebral blood flow is maintained at similar levels as in normal persons, but the autoregulatory curve is shifted to the right. This shift allows patients to tolerate higher blood pressure levels without cerebral edema, but confers a predisposition to cerebral hypoperfusion at substantively higher blood pressure levels than in normal intensive persons. To summarize our discussion thus far, we started by defining our key elements of hypertension. We then focused our discussion on the diagnostic framework and specifically related to secondary causes of acute severe hypertension. We then went into our clinical exam as well as our labs with a particular emphasis on hypertensive encephalopathy with the review of cerebral autoregulation. Similar to managing electrolyte derangements in the pediatric intensive care unit, it is important to assess the chronicity of hypertension as this will affect the rate at which we can lower our blood pressure. We are going to continue the discussion on how hypertension affects the central nervous system. Dr. Shin, would you please comment on PRESS syndrome and its clinical features? Sure. Posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, or PRESS for short, refers to a constellation of neurologic symptoms and classic imaging findings on MRI associated with acute severe hypertension. Symptoms of PRESS include headache, seizures, vision loss, or even blindness, and altered mental status. Characteristic MRI findings include cerebral edema affecting the white matter in a parieto-occipital distribution. Typically, with treatment of acute hypertension, PRESS will resolve although sometimes imaging findings may persist. Let's shift gears and talk about management. 
Dr. Shin, what is your approach to therapy with respect to acute severe hypertension in the PICU? Well, I think the intensivists do a pretty good job of recognizing and managing the usual causes of hypertension, such as pain, fluid overload, and increased intracranial pressure in traumatic brain injury. It is important to remember that there is no rush to rapidly drop blood pressure in a patient with acute severe hypertension to normal levels. Doing so may actually cause cerebral ischemia. You want to lower the blood pressure by about 25% in the first eight hours, another 25% in the next eight to 12 hours, and the final 50% over the next 24 hours. For a hypertensive urgency, you can give PO isratapine, but if the patient can't take PO, then IV labetalol or hydralazine can be used. Short-acting PO or sublingual nifedipine is not recommended. In cases of hypertensive emergency where target organs are affected, you can give a bolus of IV hydralazine or labetalol followed by a continuous nicardipine infusion. Thank you for highlighting the management of acute severe hypertension. I would just like to highlight this important clinical pearl. What we first want to do is figure out what is going to be our gold blood pressure and recognize that there is no rush. In the first eight hours, drop your MAP no more than 25% from baseline. And subsequently, in the next eight hours, consider another 25% reduction. Finally, over the next 24 hours should be your final 50% reduction. Dr. Shin, would you comment on the mechanism of action as well as the relevant side effects of these antihypertensive agents? Well, the most commonly used antihypertensive agent in acute severe hypertension is nicardipine. Nicardipine is a second-generation IV dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, which blocks L-type calcium channels and is primarily an arterial vasodilator. It's essentially become the drug of choice for acute severe hypertension in the U.S. It has no negative inotropic effects, and it doesn't affect the conduction system of the heart. It does cause reflex tachycardia and can result in thrombophlebitis with peripheral IV administration. It's also important to remember that it is metabolized by cytochrome P450, so it can affect levels of calcineurin inhibitors like cyclosporin or tacrolimus. This is particularly important in your organ transplant patients. The IV infusion dose for nicardipine is 0.5 to 4 micrograms per kilo per minute. I also want to mention nitroprusside, which is sometimes used for acute severe hypertension. Nitroprusside is an arteriolar and venous vasodilator. It lowers right atrial pressures by increasing venous capacitance, as well as right ventricular afterload from pulmonary arteriolar vasodilation. It has a very short half-life, so it can be titrated very quickly as an infusion. It's rapidly oxidized when exposed to ambient light, so it requires light-protected tubing. With nitroprusside, it's important to remember that cyanide is generated during its metabolism. Co-administration of sodium thiosulfate helps clear the cyanide byproduct by converting it to thiocyanate. However, thiocyanate accumulates in patients with kidney failure, so you should avoid it in that population. The IV infusion dose for nitroprusside starts at 0.3 to 0.5 micrograms per kilo per minute to a max of 10 micrograms per kilo per minute. To summarize, nitroprusside can predispose one to cyanide toxicity, and this may clinically manifest as hypoxemia or dissociative shock. Some of the other IV medications uh, used in the PQ, I just want to add to the good list that was given to us by Dr. Shin include uh, Esmolol, uh, Enalapril, 
clavidipine, which is a third-generation calcium channel blocker, a good drug for intraoperative blood pressure management, and uh, nitroglycerin. But uh, I think most U.S. ICUs uh, now use um, nicardipine as the drug of choice for IV infusion. Dr. Shin, coming back to an index case, 17-year-old with a blood pressure of 200 or 120 millimeters of mercury and blurry vision, how should the intensivist manage this patient? After admission to the pediatric ICU, I would start an icardipine drip and slowly titrate up until there is a 25% drop in the blood pressure in the first eight hours. Then drop by another 25% in the next eight to 12 hours, and subsequently the final 50% over the following 24 hours. Placement of an arterial line will help to titrate the nicardipine infusion. If there is a rapid drop in the blood pressure, I would consider fluid boluses to raise the blood pressure back up a bit. This is particularly important in patients with pheochromocytoma who can have forced diuresis and become intravascularly volume depleted. At least from the history and presentation, it appears that the patient needs to be worked up for a neuroendocrine tumor like pheochromocytoma. A history of headache, hypertension, and hyperhidrosis are part of the five H's of neuroendocrine symptoms. The other two are hyperglycemia and hypermetabolism. I would recommend an ultrasound of the abdomen to start, looking especially for adrenal masses but a CT of the abdomen and pelvis will eventually be needed. I would also send plasma-free metanephrine, which includes metanephrine and normetanephrine levels, and a 24-hour urine for fractionated metanephrine. Next, I would start oral therapy with an alpha blocker such as phenoxybenzamine or prazosin. You do not want to start beta blockers until the patient is adequately alpha blocked because it can cause unopposed alpha action resulting in severe hypertension. The patient will need post-operative management in the pediatric ICU for close blood pressure monitoring after tumor resection. This is a nice physiology tie-in in relation to autonomic receptors. It is important for the patient to be alpha blocked prior to beta blockade. Dr. Shin, we appreciate your insights on today's podcast. And as we wrap up, would you mind highlighting your personal clinical pearls when it comes to acute severe hypertension? Sure. First, acute severe hypertension with target organ injury is a medical emergency requiring admission to the pediatric ICU and use of a titratable IV antihypertensive medication. Placement of an arterial line will facilitate drug titration. Second, do not lower the blood pressure too quickly. The goal is to lower the blood pressure by 25% in the first eight hours, followed by another 25% in the next eight to 12 hours, and then by 50% over the 24 hours after that. And lastly, I think knowing pharmacology, especially drug interactions of commonly used antihypertensives, is critical in the pediatric ICU. To summarize today's episode, our discussion focused on acute severe hypertension, which is a medical emergency, especially when there is target organ injury. A titratable infusion of an antihypertensive such as nicardipine should be the first line to lower the blood pressure by 25% in the first eight hours as a precipitous drop may cause cerebral ischemia. While there are multiple IV hypertensives that are at disposal in the pediatric intensive care unit, we should be aware of the pharmacology and relevant side effects of these agents in efforts to choose the best drug for the patient's underlying condition. Early consultation and workup with nephrology is warranted in these patients, along with monitoring of end organ function. This concludes our episode today on acute severe hypertension. We thank Dr. Shin for her expertise on this topic. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. 
Please also visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, to view our show notes and download our Doc on Call management card, highlighting practical pearls from today's episode. To close, PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by me and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dumania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.